turtle, the, the waves through the ether fuzz roll on forever. Roar! Welcome to Death by DVD. I'm your curator, Hank. It's Friday the 13th, so of course, this episode has got to be all about Jason, right? Every time we do a Death by DVD classic, we swear it's going to be an old release, but here we are again with a recent episode. This one actually is our last live episode. The impromptu final Death by DVD. The finale of Death by DVD Live. Death by DVD was based around being live, a one-and-done performance sort of thing. We don't think it's drastically changed since the quote-unquote reboot, but the fuck do we know? This episode is sort of bittersweet. You do something live for ten years, build up to it. It was much more of a chaotic entity than it is now. Not getting to do a final live episode was bitter. It was a bit of a bummer. So, here we are. Me... You, getting close. I kind of like that. Me, you, just, just you and I. Just you. The audience, together. Let's get into tonight's episode. From June 7th, 2019, this is Cinema Bloodsport. A new beginning. A debate on which Friday the 13th movie is the greatest in the series. This episode was difficult, and the difficulties are why the changes to Death by DVD that were made happened. We set out to record a typical Cinema Bloodsport, a debate between Alexander Nash and myself on which or whatever is better than the other. We got about two hours into recording, live, may I remind you, and something went fucky. You know, something went rotten in Denmark. Servers crashed, people died, there was a fire, there was an awful fire. A lot of people died in the fire. It, it was a pretty bad fire. So we came back the next night, gave it the old college try. We really went balls to the wall debating for the second time which Friday the 13th movie is the greatest in the series. So without further ado, Cinema Bloodsport, a new beginning from June 7th, 2019, the Jason debate. Happy Friday the 13th. God, that fire was so big. Our, our office manager, Kim, uh, I mean, she just, she looked like somebody took a Cheeto and just set it on fire and uh, it just all, all burned and crispy and, and the flesh was, uh, it was awful. It smelled like barbecue. I mean, and, and Michael, our old sound guy, and Jack, our producer, and Tommy, I mean, and, 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 and Tommy, he, he was about to have his daughter, he was about to have a little girl, and God, just the smell of his hair was, uh, it, it, I can't even describe how, uh, it, it, it just was inequivocably awful. We lost so many people in the, the great office fire. But anyhow, here's the Jason debate. Happy Friday the 13th from Death by DVD. Whoa. So this is Radioland, huh? The infinite turtle, the, the waves through the ether fuzz roll on forever. Roar!
Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always, he's back, the man behind the mask, and he's out of control, it's Hank. I was going to do my real voice. I'm actually British, but I was advised to just keep the Hank gimmick up because the whole man behind the mask thing. But good evening. This is round two of the Jason debate. Yeah, fuck this server. Fuck it hard. God damn it. <laughs> We're having a little and bit I- of trouble with the Canadians that run our our wonderful show, Death by DVD, if you were listening live last night at 11 p.m. Eastern, you heard a lot of what's probably going to be discussed again, maybe differently. I don't know how this is, is going to go. We tried last night to do our Cinema Blood Sports segment, which is where I, Alexander Nash, and I debate over which something is better than the other. In this case, it was which Friday the 13th film was the greatest of all time. 54 minutes exactly into the broadcast, we were apparently cut. Something happened. Every Everything on our server went down. Uh, it wasn't just somebody picking on us. And when we recovered what audio was recorded, it just wasn't workable. So we're back to kind of try it again. We're doing it again. Hey, it didn't go 54 minutes for me. It went a full hour because I kept talking for fucking 60 minutes. Yeah. I talked for another and- six minutes without you there. What's unfortunate is like if, if that had managed to be salvaged, if that had been recorded, it unfortunately was not. We would have just gone ahead and done a part two with the end of our arguments and maybe something else or our personal favorite Jason movies. But that didn't happen, so we're back. We're back all over again. And I'm, I feel worse than I did the first time. Uh, I'm very, I know my argument now, and you know my argument now, so I don't know what's going to happen. This will be, I guess, fun for the audience because we did it once, and we're coming back, I don't know, angrier? A little so bit. bored. Yeah, we're a little <laughs> bit so bored. Unfortunately, we both have really good arguments, and I don't know what else to do about it. So we'll just go back over our points and let you decide. I guess we'll do a multi-platform poll on Facebook and everywhere and see how many people listen to this. <laughs> That's the same as always listen to it, Hank. Oh, so uh, I guess we'll do a recently seen, even though you know what I'm going to talk about. And now you've watched my recently seen, so we can actually discuss it. Yeah, on last night's episode, I hadn't seen it yet, and now, in the 18 hours since then, I managed to sit down and fit it in. Because I watched The Perfection on Netflix, which was really good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, As I was saying last night, um, you think it's going to be one thing, and then it twists into something completely different. Um, I'm going to not try to spoil as much of this as I can. But uh, the beginning of it, you think it's going to go in this kind of uh, avian flu, maybe zombie epidemic type movie. And then slowly, progressively throughout the film, it just morphs and changes into something completely else, which I um, liken to something akin to like Black Swan meets Martyrs, uh, which do you, you find that that's an apt description at this point, Hank, now that you've seen it? It really is. Uh, I was struggling and kind of annoyed throughout my viewing of it to get to the martyr's point. And when you do, it's a beefy payoff. It's enjoyable. Stumping is all I'm going to say. Yeah, because, I mean, it it just moves in a completely different direction than you originally thought it was going to. And not only that, um, story points aside, since I can't really discuss too much of that, um, 
it was filmed really well. Uh, just uh, the way he controls the digital filmmaking in the movie and the way he lights things gives everything a nice, rich tone to it, which is unusual for digital photography. You usually don't get that much drama out of digital. It like because it it is so much light, and a light and digital ends up looking like shit. But he was able to tone the light down to make it very soft and not so bold and bright. Um, but it uses a um, a filmmaking technique in it where there's basically the film gets rewound to a point that was earlier in the film so you can learn new information. And I know Hank didn't uh, really really like that <laughs> that much in the film. I, I, I didn't it just mind it. It was me. the best device, but it was okay. But as I was viewing it, I was texting you, and I'd even said, it annoys me, but I can't figure out any other way in my head to have done it. So it works. It's just a, a decent plot-telling device in general. I just find it a little tacky. Yeah, you could have done like a flashback, just a straight-up flashback, but um, it felt like that even Adam that Sandler would have done the same thing. You know, it felt like the Adam Sandler movie with Kate Beckinsale, like, oh, let me get my little remote and flip it backward. And I, th- I didn't need it, – it felt like it was kind of a jokey break to give you a laugh in between how tense the movie was, and I didn't need that. I kind of wanted to get thrown around a little bit more. Well, uh, the only problem with that is so much of what the story entails really requires you to step back and get new information that you didn't have before because – any other way of delivering that plot device wouldn't have worked particularly well, I don't think. Um, like yeah, I said I before, like a flashback would have worked, but I mean that's kind of old hat in itself. So yeah, it's not. I'm I'm not a hundred percent behind the rewind effect that they use, but I mean it works for what what it steps up plot wise in the film. Yeah. Also, doing a flashback sequence would have gotten very monotonous because these rewinds happen in total four to five times. So they are repetitive, and each time it takes you back to a different point that you've already seen in the film, but from somebody else's perspective. A flashback, on the other hand, wouldn't really encompass something like that, and again, is just too repetitive and would have gotten much more boring, and you need to be on the edge of your seat. Like, not completely segueing, but like Hold the Dark, which is what I viewed and we'll discuss again. It starts off as something that you really can, you know, I'm not going to finish this. This is a little boring. And you end up watching the entire thing on the edge of your seat. And the rewind would have, I just can't think of any other way to do it. So I can't really complain. Like I I honestly don't have a complaint or a negative review on it because there's no way in my head you could have done it better. And it was very successful. I, again, I didn't clap. You said you had applauded when you uh, saw the end of this film. I didn't clap. clap. I was pretty, I did like a fist bump, like a little Jersey Shore, like, yeah. Well, it just went into, that didn't happen, but I still bumped. (laughs) You're not, you're not sure maybe the dick did get cut off. It's possible. There could be, and see, that even makes the movie more alluring. You have the term stumping, which is like shunting, if you know what a shunt is. If you know how to shunt, (laughs) you'll know how to stump. There could be possibly penis severing. There's lesbians. Um, there's Chinese and cellos and cellists. It's it's a whole ride. It's great. Show your mom. See what she thinks about it. I'm gonna show my yes, mom. Uh, see what she thinks about it. When like that's I, I think the point where um, you introduce the whole concept of stumping 
<laughs> as you so eloquently put it, I would just what call it say? the stump fuck, <laughs> the stump fuck scene. Um, that's where I was like, oh, they're going there, are they? They're they're going to push this into completely new and interesting directions. Okay, let's go there then. And really, it was new and very interesting. I'm going to check porn yeah, overall, though, dumping. Uh, like, as far as films of this year go, we're about halfway through the year now, and it's it's on my top list, uh, top of, top list of the year. But then again, like, my list would be completely different than your list, Hank, because probably Endgame would be on that list, and I know you give a fuck about Marvel movies, so... Uh, yeah. Those two? <laughs> but the perfection was way better than Endgame, though, because it's an expertly crafted thriller, quote-unquote, I guess you could call it, or just... Uh, interesting sort of art film, which you don't get very often. You get one or two of those a year where like um, the year Green Room came out. That was that film of that year for me. Um, Fury Road came out that year also. Yeah. uh, There's several different films of that year I really enjoyed, but uh, Fury Road's more of, you know, it's a big budget sort of action film, but with overtones of kind of artistic nature to them. But as far as like the small budget film that greatly exceeds its budget and goes in weird and interesting directions, the perfection's probably not going to get beat out this year for me. That's probably going to be in one or two on my list. We'll see. Something else might come out. Yeah, really, my list um, for 2019 kind of sucks. As of 2019, I believe I've seen I've seen the Sam Raimi Spider Man's. The Dolph Lundgren Punisher. I don't know if that's considered a Marvel movie or not. It might not be. It's not Marvel Studios, so no. It's, I yeah, would but say that's, it that's not for the year. That's just what you've seen this year. Well, no, I'm saying it's got to be from the like, year. How recent I am with Marvel movies in general. That's about all I've uh, seen. I've seen one. I've seen the Mickey Rourke Iron Man actually because I like Mickey Rourke and I wanted to see what was going on. And that's probably that. the worst one. Yeah, so I've not seen a whole lot. As of 2019, I've seen Hold the Dark, which came out in 2018. So I'm slacking. I've not, I want to go see Godzilla, but will I leave my house this week? Find out next Thursday, probably. We'll maybe talk about Godzilla if I manage to see it. But I did recently see Hold the Dark, which I just told Alexander Nash before the show. I didn't even know this movie fucking existed. And I know you told I me told about you. it, but. <laughs> yeah, but. The new Sony movie's on Netflix right now. I'm watching it. Sometimes I read things and take it in. Sometimes I don't. I don't know. There's wet brain problems, all sorts of stuff. But I did finally sit down and watch it, and as usual, was uh, just uh, astonished and amazed by Jeremy Solnier and his work as a photographer. As because he, he's usually his own director of photographer. He's usually his own editor. He has his final touch to everything he does, which is really interesting. And not a lot of people get to do that unless you're Quentin Tarantino or letting one of the Weinsteins touch you inappropriately. But Sonia has a, a very masterful touch, despite the topic of this movie being a bit murky, brackish. It's dark vague. water. You're, it's, yeah, it's very vague, and you're not certain exactly what's going on. Uh, it's based on a novel, which I do recommend finding, and I'm going to find. But itself, if you enjoy something artistic and beautiful, and just some, if you enjoy film and want to be a bit of a nerd and just see something beautiful that's available widespread on Netflix, Hold the Dark is right there. Co-written the screenplay by uh, Mason Blair, the greatest guy in the world, who also appears in the movie. Uh, with uh, I'll go ahead and give a spoiler away. Mason dies, and it's great. It's it's one of the coolest deaths in the movie. That's very reminiscent of the subject matter we're about to get into, which is Friday the Thirteenth, and which one is the greatest of all time? I I I don't know. I've learned a bit more about it, 
and I'm hesitant to say as much as I did last night because like your your movie that you have discussed, I think it needs its own evaluation and you need to sit down and watch it on your own. Yeah. Don't put your phone down. Don't don't fuck off and get on Facebook and get on Tumblr while you're watching this. Put your phone down and pay attention to it. Just take 90 minutes out of your life and look at something. And then, you know, come back. Send us an email and Twitter us. Uh, email. Who uses that? Twitter us. Who says that? God, I feel old. Talk about it. Get, yeah, talk about us on some form of social media. We'd love to hear what you think about both of these. I'd love to hear the audience reception because these are out well, there. Speaking of, like, because um, when Joe Bob did the first marathon last year on Shudder, he brought up the fact of why we're doing a marathon, why is it just premiering live and not just dumping all the episodes, that kind of thing. And what he was talking about was engagement and the kind of the whole point of having this be this live thing is so that people engage, so people get on Twitter to talk about it. And that's kind of what's missing in movies now is, like, yes, people talk about movies all the fucking time. I mean, go to YouTube. There are people just bitching left and right about whatever. Oh, Captain Marvel, she's such an SJW, whatever, all that bullshit. But that's not what we're particularly talking about. What we're talking about is engage in different ideas and concepts of what you liked in the film. It's like make it an interactive experience. Share your experience with other people and not just complain about a trailer you saw or complain about all the different bullshit. It's just, let's talk about the film, what it actually is and not what you think it's going to be and all the problems you have with it because it didn't fit your criteria. Fuck that. I mean, let it wash over you and then judge it by what it is. Well, speaking of Hold On to the Dark, like, <clears throat> one of the things that like I brought up to you that after you'd watched it, you didn't pick up on it at all. And it's a very important plot device in the film of kind of what's been going on. My outlook, and that's why I don't want to really give away a lot more because I've watched the movie twice now and didn't pick up on it. And you said it, and it, it slowly replayed in my head, and I finally clicked when and where – this notion is brought forward and I, I just, it blew my mind and the movie completely changed and shifted tones and, and everything shifted completely differently in my head. But like Richard Stanley, I kind of think of everything as a film. So it's weird how it all works in this big mess. That kind of speaks to it being sort of vague is just, I didn't pick up on it myself. I had to like get on Wikipedia to read a plot synopsis and went oh shit that's what's been going okay well that's Mama fucking, Mia. that makes a lot more sense of what's been going on in this film because it's using a lot of again the best word to use to use to express this is being vague it's just so vague in a lot of the different points in the story that it's hard to pick up on if you're not like just really exclusively paying attention to what's going on at hand. Even then you might still miss it. You might miss of like what's generally going on with a plot, which kind of, it kind of colors the experience for me a little bit because I'm a little bit more of the show. Like you, I mean, there is show don't tell, but at the same time, you might have to tell a little bit. You might need some clumsy exposition lines of dialogue thrown into movies just just so people get the overall concept of what you're working with. And if you're just showing and not telling, a lot of people are just going to miss that. And that was my only real problem with Hole in the Dark. It was just it was just a little bit vague and the story itself is <clears throat> a lot more about 
interpersonal drama. And I think I was expecting something a little bit more, um, more out there, not like crazy or anything, but just more like out in the open for what it truthfully is, because a lot of it is just about personal feelings that these characters feel and they don't really express those feelings a lot of the time. You're supposed to just kind of take the performance as is and kind of interpret what their emotions are by just looks on their face and shit like that. So, but overall it's a, it's a solid movie for the most part. I wouldn't call it terrible bunny stretch of the imagination. I mean, as Hank was saying, Sonya shot it very well, um, knows how to use the location extremely well. And then there's the uh, mid movie, crazy scene which was just pretty fucking excellent uh, that's my green room guy right there yeah you do Please get a touch of here. ultra Thank God. It, it is absolutely devastating some of the violence in this movie and the emotion is just it's a roller coaster uh, I don't say this in a meaning of like sucking this movie's dick or Sonier's or David Lynch's but it's Lynchian in the aspect of how you have to interpret things and view it on your own it's got like an Inland Empire dreamlike aspect you're very like you touched upon it's judging through these characters emotions so you have to put yourself in their place and if you don't understand the subtleties and let it come to you it's almost dreamlike you know art nouveau kind of and i I think a lot of sony's influences show with that and he might have had a lot more freedom to do uh certain uh, interpretations here but it being a novel in the first place, obviously he could only film and take certain things and chose to do uh, maybe a more artistic, dreamlike, you know, Lynchian kind of thing with it. Well, that's like I haven't read the novel personally, but most of the problems I have with the story were probably originated with the novel itself and not with the direction of the script. So, I mean, just take that for what it is. It's, uh, I'm probably just not as interested in what the original story was to begin with. So I don't, like, I don't be crux or, like, um, be whatever the fucking word I'm trying to use. Be crux? That's not a word. I, I, I wouldn't fault Sonya or Macon Blair for, like, for what they ended up with with, this, with a movie. I just more fault the book for all the things that I don't really like about the film. But overall, I think it's it's a decent movie altogether. It feels like something's missing, so there might be a lot more questions answered in the book. That's possible. Oh, God. It's All right. time to cinema blood Do sport. this again. Yeah. Do this again. Now, what sucks is we're <sighs> supposed to be debating each other. So, like, if this was a court of law and we were both trying to prove the innocence of somebody at this point, I think we'd end up sending them both to jail. Yeah. Basically, yes. I think what's... I've uh, laid my case out for an hour already, and you already know basically what my points are going to be. This whole thing is, it's a mistrial. It's already a mistrial, hang, hung jury. Yeah, this is, uh, I guess at this point, it's going to be us both discussing why our movies are, are really good. Uh, and if you don't know what we're talking about, we are going to be discussing which Friday the 13th movie is the greatest of all time. Oh, what's going on there? We've what got sound that? effects. This this, this is high produced. You like that? <laughs> hey, um, you want to yeah. hear the story? How Harry Manfredini came up with this? Because every piece of documentary footage that features that man, he explains the story of the Echoplex. And I said, kid and bah, and repeated it. And it's just like, I'm just so tired of hearing the same stories. But then again, like, um, 
if you've seen any documentary with Tom Savini in it, holy shit, does he always have the same talking points? He's always yeah. like, he talks about Vietnam, and I saw anatomically correct gore. He uses that terminology explicitly every time, and, and if that's he managed kind of a to, drawback. Well, if you see anything about the Savini School or you find an ad for the Savini School, that's always a massive point, too, of like, nope, we have all the curriculum that you have to have for an actual school. We have anatomy classes. I make these kids do anatomy classes. They've got to learn about the human body. I was in Vietnam, and, I, and it just – he manages somehow – to, he's memorized this one thing, and it's a good speech. It's like by no means, I'm, yeah, I'm not making fun of Tom, but I almost know it by memory now. Like I, I could sell Savini School to a blind kid just Every on talking commentary. Points. Yeah, I've listened to Every 30 all the years of reading Fangoria, all the ads. I, I know so much about Tom Savini. We should just do a well, George Savini called me show. Up, That's, and he said, "Think of interesting ways to kill people." And then I said, "Okay, yeah, it's it's the same." spiel every time with a lot of these people because they get interviewed over and over again so they just they come up with their thing we're off on a complete tangent here but <laughs> generally yeah, that's just probably what the show is going to end up being uh, what's which, funny you, is well yeah. uh, a quick harry manfredini thing many many years ago on a different program i interviewed harry manfredini and we stayed in contact afterwards so i heard the whole thing you know in person transcribed it this was a live show type thing and then it was written down and then about four years after that I ended up doing another interview with Harry Manfredini, and we had lost touch. We had vaguely remembered each other, and halfway through, he goes, you know what? You, you've heard this, haven't you? I've done this with you before, and he just cuts off, and he starts talking about at the time he'd made a Lifetime movie called Mrs. Smith Goes to Washington, a play on the Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Jimmy Stewart movie, and he talked about the recording process for that for a good 20 minutes, and the show ended, and I, I personally was just incredibly happy that I think I'm one of the only people that ever managed to get a Harry Manfredini interview where he talked about something else other than fucking Jason, which again, we're going to talk about so much, so much Jason, but yeah, that's me. your boy, Hank. I got the Mrs. Smith well, goes to Washington exclusive interview with Harry Manfredini in like which, 2005. Which brings me to my first point of Friday 13th movie. <laughs> one of the things we can't really oh, discuss to too much is the score. Yes, we're back to this. We're repeating all oh, we didn't the do the score last night, night, though. We never really got no, I mean, the scores. Yeah, so we... What's well, going to be the fun scores is, are the same. Well, They're I know, same personally, we have some live listeners tonight that are were, were part of last night, and I guess a reminder, too, to people that don't listen to this live, the whole point of Death by DVD initially was it to be kind of a live broadcast, and that's the end of it, that there's no other way of listening to it. Now in the age of podcasting, everything's recorded, you can check it out whenever, but when a show fucks up or when something happens, we're both left, if something happens to you or something happens to me, we're both left on dead air not knowing what to do, and in last night's occasion, it seems that you were left in the void of radio land and everybody else was cut off. So uh, repeating this. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. You, you're a golden boy. You, you are the golden pony. You, you rule and we all give you credit for it because you carried it and tried your best. Uh, but if you're listening again, we'll try uh, do it reverse. I don't know. I'm trying not to be crotchety <laughs> about it because it's like Crispin Glover's fucking dead fuck dance is haunting my dreams. I've watched so much. I watched the whole series again, and I'm so tired of it. I'm good for a couple years. You're never good with Friday the 13th. You have to watch them all at least once a year, Hank. Don't you oh. know? It's part of the horror handbook. It's supposed to be your favorite series. 
I okay, if I had to pick a favorite, it's still Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, I I know that is that a competitor? Can you include that? Because you've got Freddie, Jason, and Michael Myers. I guess you can add Pinhead. What props so can you, do you have? What props have, did you buy, Hank? I have the special edition Texas box set that's made to look like the truck at the end of the movie. I have a Halloween 2 Michael Myers mask, and I have a prop uh, Texas 3, the uh, Saw's family chainsaw. So I have a bunch of Texas uh, stuff. I have a lot of pop vinyls. I have no props and no memorabilia, because fuck that shit. It doesn't I have get you any closer room. to the thing that you love. I you have some care. stuff. They well, I'll be I have. gifts. You've got the uh, oh. light-up VHS. Well, I don't count that. I'm That's more talking something. about the. Um, I'm t- more talking about kind of the like a lot of the products. Um, uh, or just like the. Yeah, but you're not a people you're not a spending. physical media guy. No, well, I'm more talking about the people who spend all the money on. Hey, did you know this is the the screen worn shirt? But like, oh. okay, so it's well, a okay, fucking I shirt. I get what you mean, the super fans out there. I have, you know, some goofy collector stuff because I really enjoy it, and I don't think my box Yeah, people buy me really... shit all the time. People yeah. buy me all the little product-y merchandising stuff, and so it's okay. It's, I'm not, like, shitting on it exclusively, but it's just when you go to YouTube and you see uh, the uh, inevitable critic who's standing in front of a bookshelf filled with DVDs and toys – which they always have to have the toys. Look at all my toy collection, and look, I have every Jason that they've made from Funko Pops, and just like, come on, get a life. Just get a life. A movie is a movie. Right. Just let it Right now, breathe. my 24 point of articulation with an actual really knit-kilt Roddy Piper action figure is judging you. That's different. That's Roddy Piper. Okay. That's a completely okay. different situation, Hank. That's I didn't know, I didn't know if you yeah. Okay, because my Jeff Hardy action figure on the other side of the room is also judging you. There's some. I have a lot of Walking Dead stuff, and I will admit, <laughs> I, I purchased Hold all on. of this. Now I'm judging you, Jeff Hardy action figure. What? I got both of them. I got the brothers. <laughs> oh, I think differently of you now, Hank. It's you the uh, the, the new. It's the new WWE deletion line ones. I thought they were neat. I wanted to get them. <laughs> Have you seen the I'm new Sting action figure? You. It's got its own bald spot. You can lift it up and you can turn it down. <laughs> we just lost like 90% of our listeners. Like, these fags like wrestling? What? I wanted to hear a debate about Jason Voorhees, and they're talking about wrestling. I like wrestling ironically. How about that? Is that good enough? I like it unironically. I have a mustache I like good wrestling. a Hawaiian shirt, and I unironically like wrestling. What, what do you think about that? I enjoyed the AD, a, uh, AEW pay-per-view that was on like last week because that was actually decent wrestling and not some weird, dumb comedy show. I hate WWE. I can't watch it anymore. It's god I don't cool. actively watch wrestling whatsoever, but I love toys, and I impulsively buy stuff and poorly spend my money. That's a fact. Spend it on the show, Hank. Oh, shit. You know what that sound means? That means we straight away from the topic. (laughs) I think it's time for Jason. Uh Uh-oh.
<laughs> All right, let's start this goddamn fucking show again. Can you see? Can you see how irritated we are that we don't want to go into this shit all over again? We oh, bought some right. running time. See, most directors don't <laughs> use the B-roll at first, but we did a Fred Olin Ray move, and we would shot all the B-roll and threw it at you and made you sit through that <laughs> to get to the... We made you sit long enough for this to register anywhere as a downloaded episode. So thank you. You can that fucking tune out at this point. This is our uh, 10-year-old John Carradine footage that we're just slapping into a 2002 movie. All right. All of this was so. recorded in 2005. <laughs> Let's do this fucking garbage. I think Friday the 13th Part 2 is the best Friday the 13th movie because I think it epitomizes the slasher genre for when it was at its best and utter core of it before it became a parody of itself. Um, let's see. What works in this movie for me? I think the violence is more shocking. Last night... You brought up something that you disliked about Friday the 13th Part 2, and we're going to talk about that again, which the is the dissolved to white. Yes, which I really enjoyed in Friday the 13th Part 2 because I think they lend a moment a of, of shock value to the film because, as I described before, that when you do that freeze frame and you do the dissolve to a white screen, it illuminates the theater and it hurts your eyes and it makes the overall murder in that scene a lot more graphic is the wrong word. It's more of a um, more shocking. It, 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 it's a shock to your senses when you do those dissolves to white and you didn't approve. You like the, the hard cut, the hard cut after the action, just going into the next scene. And I have to disagree with you. I think, the uh, dissolve to white is a is a much more interesting piece of filmmaking. Uh, in my case, I feel it's almost a little bit cheap. There are my point example was the wheelchair scene, which actually was a stunt man. But I think you see too much of stuff, and then you fade directly to white, and it cheapens the effect. It's a way of, of making you not pay attention to what's going on. Or the scene cutting. Now, you get a little bit more of allowance if you got a bad cut or some stupid shadows or something going on, which happens in part four, which has very quick and hard cuts. In part four, there is a, a great scene where one of the twins is killed outside, and you just see the silhouette of the murder happening, and Jason stabs her with some sort of spear. He's got a spear. He stabs her with it, and you see it on the side of the house in a lightning strike. And it cuts really hard, and I think the next scene I kind of hate because you get the body slapping against the house, which is almost too much. And if you'd have just like cut and gone to white in that case, to me it would have cheapened it even more. And you get some really awesome kills in part two, namely the one we'll discuss that I've, I had a problem with, the wheelchair guy, that poor, poor prick. He tells you not even like three or four minutes before he gets killed, I'm not going to die in this chair. My doctors say I'm paralyzed from the knees down forever, but... My dick works, and I'm going to walk one day. And then he gets fucking hit in the face with a machete, and it's awful. And he goes down the stairs, this awesome scene, these horrible exorcist stairs while it rains. And then it cuts to white right after, and it makes me feel cheap. It, you know, if you're going to show, just show me hitting the ground, or go right, expose the next scene. And then Friday 4, you've got the first time Savini returned to the series since part 1, that when they asked him to do part 2, it was... No, Jason doesn't exist. This is stupid. Part four, he was finally fed up enough with it that, all right, I'll come back because I can finally kill him. And uh, 
they decided uh, they had an effects crew before things had started, and Savini came in. They got along. Things were, and it's like an effects crew. Guys like Ted Yeager were working on this. So names that really rocked the industry. A lot of decent people, not decent as their personality, but well, hardworking, really great effects. It was a young guys. special effects crew, and they were all like yeah. literally they're all like eighteen and nineteen, and they. It's not that they weren't talented. I don't think they had the wherewithal to actually like form a like a budget for it. They didn't understand the actual production aspects of it. They like the art they could handle, but the actually making a budget and time and all that they were having a problem with. So, like into the shooting, they brought Tom Savini back in because Joseph Zito had worked with him on The Prowler, yeah, and maybe a year or two years before that. From what so, I understand, I mean, that's um, generally why they did it. The studio had had a, a team brought in and had things going on and starting. They'd started the Jason mold and were basing it off of Ari Lehman or Lemons, Jason from the very first movie that Savini did, and he came in and kind of approved. I think they were just filming Axel's death, that they had had um, the idea of what they were going to do with his neck and the prosthetic of sitting him backward and snapping his neck and slitting his throat with the uh, bone saw or the chest cavity saw or whatever it is. And uh, he approved and just kind of, yeah, the hacksaw. And Savini just kind of approved. I think they had the fat girl uh, on the side of the road death also figured out at that point. And, and Tom stepped in and, you know, he's a good guy. He works with a lot of different people and he kind of oversaw it and took that direction and it became what it is. But back to the, the point of the different types of kills between two and four in part four, they're very, very quick. So they're on, they're all very masterful. You have some of the most notable kills in the movie. One of my most favorites is the face to the shower where you had uh, a, a dummy head and you get a very quick cut of the head and the nose breaking and Jason just shoving it in and the eyeball popping out. And then it quick cuts. And it kind of saves up. You get the violence. You get a great amount of the gore. But it saves up for the master scene, which is Tommy Jarvis, young Corey Feldman, killing Jason. Finally, for the very first and final time, because this was billed as the final. This was the biggest of them all, the end. All the guys are returning. We got everything on deck. It's going to be big. Jason movie. And it pays off. I mean, there's. I don't think there's a heavy argument that that's not one of the coolest scenes in the entire series is Jason's death in part four. Well, I will say that you have a definite more interesting kill of Jason at the end of this one, but I think the ending is overall flat in Friday the 13th part four, and the uh, jump through the window at the end of part two is a lot more shocking. It's a lot more like entertaining and overall feel of it. Um also, uh, yeah, uh, windows like, out your ass about... in part four. Jason eh, throws well, people all day long. Part four, he's been powerlifting. You got a guy thrown through a window. Uh, Crispin Glover's nailed to a door. Then he put. I never got that part. He nails him to the door, and then maybe he didn't like his job and rips him off later, which is still a great. Well, scene. he's done he, with he, it. He, yeah, he's it, he had the shot. As an artist, I think you and I both understand if you don't like a piece, sometimes you destroy it, and maybe he wasn't happy with that piece. I do think you get one of the pinnacles here of Jason loves to show off his kills uh, like art pieces, and you get him really displaying things in part four. He goes out of his way and above and beyond. And part two, a great Jason. You know, um, Warrington Gillette did the face, and you've got one major scene with Warrington Gillette. Then you had a guy named Steve Dash, who I think died this year, or maybe been 2018, sure. did most of the stunts. And it's a great performance, but Sackhead Jason, to me, is uh, when you think of Jason Voorhees, I don't think people instantly go with Sackhead. They go with Ari coming out of the lake in part one, and then, weirdly, I think most people think of the Jason in space mask. That's a really popular one. 
I uh, see. I have to go more with the overall design of Sackhead Jason as being a kill Billy. And, and when they pull the Sackhead off, I think it's a much more interesting and much more true to life design of him having this like half beard and this, this long hair that they just completely abandoned by part three. Um, and I think it's just an overall. <laughs> Jesus. It's an yeah. overall more interesting look to the character. I've, feel personally and i think i like i have to how give you that spastic jason is in part two uh because he's he's a clod he's a klutz and he's well, uh, like some masterful this. killer i just hate using this term and i know it's inappropriate but i'm just gonna go ahead and say it but you've got the the perfect mongoloid monster jason performance and that was very popular in the 1980s you had it in the mad max movies it, it was, I guess, I'm not going to say a simpler time because all of the problems were just being s- swept under the rug. But when it came to displaying people with disabilities in movies, you could get away with a lot more. Obviously, Jason doesn't have all of his marbles. So you have a sympathetic concept with him. You, When you see him in part two and his behavior in part two, it's almost like a, a, a wounded, hurt animal. So you can look at Jason a little bit more humanely. And I have a problem with that because when you think of the series and you think ah, of perfection, much more reality based though. Well, yeah, and that I I appreciate it on a different level. But when you're thinking of Friday the Thirteenth and you're trying to come up with which one's the best, you really want. I I don't like the Demon Jason, so this is a bit of my favoritism coming in here. But you want just a, a killing spree. You just want ultimate destroyer Jason, but he still can be hurt. And in part four. He gets hurt a few times. He runs a few times. He obviously gets mad when he runs. He's been attacked with a hammer, so he takes off after the chick. He's pissed off. You get Jason still showing human emotion. Now, they based his face when he's unmasked at the end a bit more on the original Jason, and it's goofy. They could have kept the hair. I liked it. I will say part four is my favorite Jason unmasked. Or part two. Part two is my favorite Jason unmasked. Part four... It leaves a little bit more that you want, but at the same time, with the amount of gore you it's get following so him being in part four, well, like but a that space alien. he gets well. It's funny is some of the masks that you see at the beginning of the movie that Tommy Jarvis makes are better than the fucking Jason mask at the end. But the gore you get is is good enough for me to look past it. But I have to give you the point that uh, unmasking Jason, sackhead Jason, in part two, it's cool. You feel bad even when you see his face because it's almost like, oh, God damn it. See, something's wrong with him. He doesn't understand. He's just killing in defense. But again, scared animal, Jason. People came to my trailer. I'm just running from the sheriff. I saw these kids kill my mom. Defense just doesn't cut it for me. I want, I'm just fucking killing. Here's the goddamn corkscrew. Ted, where's the corkscrew? Ted! Where's the corkscrew? <laughs> Pretty good Crispin there, my friend. Um, well, I mean, if getting to probably one of my overall point for the my argument for two being the best is I think the tone is a lot better in part two because the tone feels a lot more like a standard movie and it's not just it's like part four becomes more of an action film and not as much as of a slasher film. So it's and in part you two, there's actual. And I, I wanted to just There's, interject when you said that, that it's Joe Zito did part four. And Joe Zito, if you don't know who he is, he did The Prowler, but he also did Missing in Action. He did Blood Rage. He did Delta Force. You know, he's done major action movies. But Friday 4 was before the start of all that. So you have a pre-Joseph Zito action, 
but it still fits in with like the Prowler, which is funny. I've said before, I kind of find the Prowler a little bit boring and I don't particularly like it. And I, I like this one a lot more, but it has that same feeling to it, that lurching kind of, I don't know what's going to happen. And you brought up last night, you were annoyed because you know, Tommy's not going to die. I beg to differ because when this movie came out, this was Corey's first live action role. He'd done all dogs go to heaven for Disney beforehand. So nobody knew who he was. Now, yeah, it's almost established at this point by part four. That they're Jason not going to kill, kill a kid. Kids. Yeah, that's what I mean. You, you kind of know they're not going to kill the kid, but you still might have had a little bit. Like, if this had been after the Lost Boys, yeah, they're not going to kill Corey. But you might have had a little bit of belief. Maybe this is the first time Jason's going to kill a kid, which I know is a cheap shot to pull up because that would have only worked the first time you saw it in 1984. So, bad well, point. And, well, into part two again. It's much more of based around the idea of suspense because you feel for the uh, the final girl, Amy Steele, best final girl in a slasher film, by the way, because she is very of strong. Of all time? What? Of all time? Above Halloween? Above Jamie Lee? Laurie Strode? Yes. Yes, because Laurie Strode is a blubbering mess through a lot of it. And Amy Steele managed to, to persevere in Friday 13th Part 2. She is scared i mean she even pisses herself at one scene which i think works really well because it brings a it lends to a sense of reality that she's hiding under this bed and she just releases her bladder because she is so goddamn terrified but she still perseveres through that to take down jason and to use her wits and her smarts to take him down through psychology and she's a much more well-rounded character She's not, I mean, when they always say the final girl is, oh, she's a virgin. And like, Amy Steele's not a fucking virgin. That chick was like, she's fucking Paul. Paul ain't fucking her in Friday the 13th Part 2. She's letting him have sex with her. She wants it, not him. So, I mean, like, she's just a very strong final girl. And I think Part 2 overall is quintessential early slasher genre. And I think it's taken to its absolute peak in this film because it's it has suspense. It has kind of a, a little bit of a whodunit type situation going on. But ultimately, it's about these these people getting kind of slowly killed. And there's a sense of suspense in between the deaths. It's not just a hack and slash fest. It's characters that I genuinely like. And I don't want to see them die. And that's why the wheelchair death in part two works so well is because you do have sympathy for him. You do have sympathy for this character who might get, be getting laid for the first time. I don't know his backstory, but that's a, that's a he, he, possibility. Okay, you're bringing that up, but they state beforehand that he tells the story that he was in a motorcycle accident. That guy was getting pussy. Look at his feathered haircut, <laughs> his chiseled jaw. He was driving a motorcycle. He was pounding poon all day long beforehand. So I don't. I have sympathy for him because he's fucking crippled. But that guy was definitely, you know, slapping guts. He could have had a motorcycle wreck when he was twelve on a dirt bike. You don't know that. Okay, you still, don't know that. It was the late seventies at that point. He was still probably getting laid. Things were different back then. Summer camp was a wild <laughs> experience. But I think. You still have a lot of emotion for the characters in part four. Now, Joseph Zito I just Zito don't care as much about them. Because they're you're, 
you have that uh, argument, but and I'm not like defending most people and other people's reviews of it. But Joseph Zito sat down when he got this job, and first and foremost said, "I can't write a movie," um, and they gave him more money, so he said, "Hell yeah," and just used some of the budget to hire somebody to help write it, this and get it done. And his demands were, "I want twins, a dog, and I, for once, believable characters. Let's make people act actually how they are right now." And with the dynamic group of friends, uh, which is just kind of a great cast, you've got Crispin Glover and the chick from Weird Science. What a great cast. Yeah, sorry. And Peter Barton, the amazing Peter Barton from Hell Knight, uh, makes an appearance. Ooh, uh, probably, Peter Barton. Yeah, and he's the, uh, the femme fatale in this. He's your lead sexy girl, Peter Barton. I hope he likes me referring to him that way and doesn't mind Mr. Peter Barton. Well, you have, I don't find that many of the girls have that much sex appeal in part four. I think Judy Arnes well, in Weird Science has the most sex appeal. You 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 have the girls and you have fairly normal girls, but they gave like the you have the archetypes of characters. Like Crispin Glover is the nerd, but he's the only sex scene. You so you get the nerd sex scene, which is kind of unheard of. That's not your average Shermer Illinois movie. Um, Teddy Bear, who you really think is going to end up getting laid, gets one of the more lame deaths, I'd say, in the series, which is kind of a shock because you'd expect him being kind of the mouth character to get something really violent happening. Peter Barton is your female lead. He's the really super attractive. He's the one killed in the Alfred Hitchcock psycho scene. The great homage in the shower, which I mentioned is one of the greatest scenes, Jason crushing the head. You really pristine Tom Savini effects right there. That's Savini all the way through. It's Peter Barton. So it focuses a little bit differently, and the characters end of it. Like, you're not really supposed to like Crispin Glover. There's a scene between where they're, him and Teddy Bear have two twins, very attractive twins. Well, you got the pretty one. He's a bit of a dick. One of the greatest jokes in the movie that has become quintessential with quoting Friday the 13th is the dead fuck. Let me put that in the computer. It's great back-and-forth dialogue. It's very real, very joking with your friends, very realistic. And you've got the it great doesn't strike me as real. Fuck. See, I've had you uh, called film we've had the discussion, but I will maybe because we're burnouts and watch movies all the time. We have weird film discussions, but I, I don't know. It's part, it's my reality. So that's again me bringing favoritism forward. But well, I, I, think I find who has real. way much more reality into it, and not only that, it has that um, certain campfire story feel. I mean, there's literally a campfire story in it. So I mean, that's that's very that apt to what I'm talking about, but. Well, that's they use it in part four. They crib from part two to stick it in part four. But um, and I think overall, like the characters are all fairly likable people. I mean, yeah, there's a couple of assholes in that mix, but overall, they seem like real people to me. And in part four, there's just so many art types, and it's just so like it's less believable. It's I it's think they to go transcend. to that trend of unlikable slasher fodder, which I'm not a fan of. I want to like my victims. I don't want to see them die. I want to feel bad when they die. I don't want to, like, finally get rid of this fucking prick. Because when Teddy dies, it's like, yeah, kill the prick. He's annoying. Well, see, <laughs> I, I still feel sympathy with Teddy. And, and for me, I think this is the last movie where you have sympathetic characters because at the same time, you're given fodder with the teenagers. I don't expect you to like every single character because you do pull in some of the archetypes here. And not so much just 80s movies archetypes, but the slasher characters. And if we're going to be serious, it wasn't Wes Craven that invented the rules, but... There is a way of doing slasher movies, and it all involves certain archetypes and th certain things happening and smoking pot or having sex, whatever. 
And this is at the beginning of that history in horror time. So you're given the teenagers as fodder to kill. Well, they're in their late. You're not really. They're not teenagers per se. This is one of the. They're in their mid thirties. Well, uh, Chris Van Glover just turned 20 when the movie was released. So most of them are 19, 20 years old, but it's kind of displayed that they're going out on a weekend, older kind of maybe college kids. But you get the Jarvis family, which is I, I enjoy. A lot of people have a problem with. I know you're not a fan of it. But you get the Atomic family, and they're nice. They're happy. I love the hugging scene, which people think is too cheesy, but to me it just displays that they're normal. You don't always have to have an evil father character or a shitty mom or an angry sister. Like, you are led to believe in Halloween, especially the Rob Zombie series, that Judith is a shitty sister, and that's one of the reasons why Michael kills her. I don't care that he's a little white trash trailer park kid, and Tom Towles yells at him. Not Tom Towles. Uh... Uh, shit. You, okay, you put me on the spot here. Yeah, I can't remember his name right now because we've been talking. I know who the exactly sheriff from who the Devil's is, Rejects. Yeah, he played Flat Top. It's William and, um, something. William Forsythe. Yeah, yes, boom. William Forsythe. There you go. Couldn't yeah, think of it William, at the moment. But that just—it's just too much for me. I like having the dynamic of a nice family. And you're like, I'll give you that the mother character—you don't see what happens, and that would have been a lot more emotional. But you have still the bond between the brother and the sister, and them fighting for their lives and their integrity. And they have friends. They care. She cares about the other people. And they work together, and you get a different feeling than you do with most of the other movies because you have the final girl and little boy who has used the same moves from part two, and I'll give it to you. It's kind of goofy. I guess we'll have to get into how and my theory as to why he shaves his head and all that in a little bit. But I think you relate to them. You, If you might not have had a, still a nice family, you might have wanted to have a big hug sandwich with your family, and you get it. Yeah, I don't relate to them at all because they feel like movie family to me. And it just doesn't strike me as oh, man. Like reality based. And part two I'm is defending a lot more reality based. I mean, you can sit here and defend them all day. Well, like, right. I mean, part two is so dated for me that I can't feel a reality or relation to the characters. Even though you've got like the relatable fun nerd who still gets laid and everything's all right, it's just not. My, it's still pretty boys to me. It's like part one. I, I'm supposed to believe that Kevin Bacon at that time is a 16 year old camp counselor, and you go into part two, it's even more prominent. I think in four, you at least have people that are 19, 20, 21, and then Corey Feldman, who was 11, 10 years old, believable ages. Uh, it's not 90210. It's not you know 28-year-old Luke Perry going to second period. <laughs> well, I will give you that uh, Paul from Part May 2 he is probably, he, he's probably 35 years old um, in the film because uh, he does not look young at all. But, I mean... When it you, when you go to part four, you kind of abandon the whole camp killer vibe of the whole thing because they abandon part three and that. they just kind of it becomes more of a about just don't go near this lake, college kids. It just becomes well, a lot not, more exploitive. You got to look at what the gimmick is that's trying to be sold here, um, and we brought this up on the previously recorded debate. But part two is five years after. The beginning of part two features your heroine from the first movie being ignorantly and, and bafflingly killed by Jason, and then it skips to five years later on Friday the 13th. Then you go to part three. Part four takes place technically the Sunday morning the of – Yeah, technically it's the morning of Monday, but Sunday the 15th is when the bulk of the action happens, so kind of a two-day period 
and it you're so when you watch them, I think that's left out. And obviously, years later, and people that are watching the series that were born after this took place. If you're born in '95 and you're watching it, you got to pay attention to what's going on. That it's a three day period. Bam, 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 bam. And then the billing of this movie is important to me selling my argument. So I'm going to bring it up. This was the final movie. This is the end. And still, was it this? Yeah, this is the that's the that's what the movie is. The final one. This is the end of Jason <laughs> Voorhees. I'll I'll pull it up here. Where where are we at? The final chapter. Yeah, Friday the Thirteenth for the yeah. final chapter. So what's important? Yeah, it's is the last that, one, Hank. Oh, well, it's supposed to be. That's the thing. So when this was billed, when this was released, they're finally killing Jason. And what you have, and what the importance holds with this, is from here on, Jason transcends. And part five, spoilers. It's not Jason, and then he returns from the dead as this demonic zombie. Well, I wouldn't say zombie because he doesn't eat the living, and he doesn't rot. So I would say like a demonic or – see, demonic brings some form of religion into it. He's an undead entity that has risen and can't be destroyed unless he gets stuck in Manhattan toxic waste, which says a lot for New York City. And then I he suppose. turns to a little boy. For some unexplicable reason, an, which a I think non-deformed is a little four. boy. I mean, they're are they're using the notion, which part four borrows from part two, with Tommy Jarvis reads that you have this weird interlude that there's a Jason Hunter whose sister was killed in part two, and he is supposed to be the hero, eventually killed, and Tommy finds his knapsack and goes through it and finds these newspaper clippings about Jason, and you're given in this little montage the belief that he has formed an opinion on Jason Voorhees' psyche and comes up with this quick-witted idea that he's going to run upstairs, shave his head, because he matches around the same age that Jason was when he supposedly drowned, and he's going to trick Jason into thinking that he's younger Jason and convince him, you know, don't harm people. I'm your younger self. Everything's okay. Again, borrowing from part two. So in part eight, I think yeah, it's a lot less using, believable too than part it's two. It's a lot less believable. Part two makes sense. Well, it's a lot less believable, but again, we're debating on what's the better Friday the 13th movie, which is about a character that didn't exist in the first place, killing teenagers so uh, going with the best, I'm going to go, yeah, you've got a bit of a laughing stock with Corey Feldman with his shaved head. But then Jason gets hit in the face with a fucking machete, the machete from Dawn of the Dead. Uh, and that's how the scene came forward. The original idea I'll talk about in a minute. But he falls. The microwave. Rips his head down. <laughs> yeah, the original idea, again, Tom Savini and Magic here, they had a scene where Tommy Jarvis uh, was showing the Jason Hunter how he could – he made this little microwave oven. He took a piece out of a microwave and made this melting ray, and he shrinks down a G.I. Joe. They were going to have him at the end of the movie somehow jam this thing into Jason's head, and when he shrinks the G.I. Joe, it was on number one, and he turns it up to number ten, puts it in Jason's head, and it blows his head up, kind of like the uh, Last House on the Left remake microwave thing. And obviously, Savini pitched that, and they were nice about it. And, and it no. was dumb as fuck. Yeah, uh, it was a dumb fuck idea. He had to sell that, and somewhere in his story about seeing this happen in Vietnam somehow, they said, no, we're going to pass. <laughs> and they were goofing off in the studio, and someone tossed him the Dawn of the Dead machete, and they came up with the idea then and there of what to do. Which really, I know I've said it before, and I don't mean to be um, you know, repetitive, but I really think that's one of the highlights of the entire series. Twelve movies in the entire series, counting the remake, and I think Jason dying in part four is just one of the greatest parts. Well, like uh, talking about murders, I think uh, the murders are um, 
a little bit more creative in part two. It's a long litany of different weapons he uses. Uh, he has a like a, a much more interesting bag of tricks. And by part four, he's turned to a Superman and he's just crushing heads. And he's just he's become well, I, like I think that's non-reality payoff, based at that point. I mean, you're uh, Jason's always been portrayed as a much bigger man. And I, I think that scene is one of the biggest payoffs because by part four, it's become a trademark that Jason uses different implements, different household tools to kill people. Like Michael Myers just has the one knife that he somehow magically finds. Freddie, Leatherface, they all have their own implements. But Jason was a mysterious kind of thing. So using his hands even adds into, well, shit, you're just definitely fucked. There's nothing that I can do about it. And uh, in part two, I'll give you a great scene, uh, one of my favorites, the sh- the chase, where you know it's scared Jason crossing the woods, and the sheriff goes after him, and you've got this really well-paced scene of Jason in the lead and the sheriff going after him, and they finally come across Jason's home, which gives him a bit more personality, and you get a hammer to the back of the head, and it cuts away and goes to the white very quickly. But then and there, you're shown some of... Jason's speed and some of his strength because the sheriff's a pretty big man and he just jams the hammer into the back of his head after he's run and hid for a a good 10 minute chase what you're led to believe so Jason is established he's got some strength in part three too it's not shied away from that he is a a lot stronger than the average guy he does crush a man's head in part two three so yeah You know, so it's not just them pulling out cheap tricks that we're going to do this and make him superhuman. They had previously pushed that. And some of the deaths in part two, I mean, where the fuck did he throw that machete from to hit the wheelchair guy? I mean, he's got some weird accuracy for an inbred hillbilly guy. Well, and it's weird he there. He, just, Jason, he stepped up on him. He stepped I up say on him and smacked him in the face. I mean, you're never really given. I think in one of like a fan novel or something, uh, Elias Voorhees is mentioned, but I don't think specifically he's inbred. I don't know what the excuse Uh, would be as to why Jason is so special. Inbred is just a loose term for being some sort of uh, mutated, deformed person. Blah blah blah. He's not particularly inbred. He was just he was born special, but he's also not a smart individual. I mean, he had no real training for some reason. Also he's talking in part one, he's doing the whole help me thing in the, uh, in the lake. But by part two, he just loses his voice entirely. So I'm assuming he's lived out in the woods so long. He's just gone totally feral, which again, went to my point that it's a much more interesting character as Jason, because it's, it's more reality based. It's this, feral human being who like knows nothing other than survival and killing and in part four it's just he becomes a he's just a super villain i mean he's just he's got inhuman strength and he like he becomes to like begins to teleport more he's not doing much stalking there's not much POV but he takes footage off running anymore. i mean they show jason fully running in part four and i think since it is so many days in a row after part two concedes and part three begins and then going into part four, he's just hurt. He He's angry. He doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't understand what's going on. So he's just violently attacking and killing absolutely everything. And now it's become a game to him. 
That's why he's throwing people through windows. I mean, not trying to give a full personality profile as to why he's doing what he's doing. But again, when you try to bring up the best in the series and you're looking at the greatest kills, the greatest shot movie, the greatest sounding, the best Jason, I'm still sticking with part four just because of those examples because he is almost superhuman. It's the Jason people think of. He's already got the cracked and damaged mask. His hands are, I, I think, the best in this movie. The Jason claws have gone from the broken, busted-up nail in part two to giant, freakish black fucking roots that are growing out of his hands. And he's just monstrous. But, That's the kind of quintessential Jason that people go to the Halloween store and dress up as. It lends itself to more of what the series became. I don't think it particularly makes it better. I just think it's it becomes almost like a bastardization of what originally was thought of and the original idea was just a feral human being and what i think part five is where the bastardization starts and four is where it truly ends and is the last actual jason movie and it's the the first time that they show what they bastardize like everything post part four is what they're ripping off that they're using that as the block they're not using the original what? series. That almost part one and two are their own different environments. It's like Halloween. Well, how... really, it changes in part three. Part three is where it really starts to change, and they're really starting to try to turn this Jason character into a marketable merchandise machine. And part two, it's just it's a lot more pure. It's a lot classier of a film. It uh, again, it's it's so much more reality based as opposed to just kind of. What what people kind of equate the series to now, which is just a killing machine, which I find not quite as interesting. I, I I think the vulnerability of Jason in the second one is what makes it a lot more interesting. That these people have have a chance if they just act smart. And by part four, you you've got no chance just because you shave your head. I mean, like, what kind of fucking chance is that? I mean, it's just he's a teleporting fucking like Frankenstein at this point. And like, I just find that less interesting and less complex of a character than you have in part two. I think he's a lot more complex in part two. He has a life outside of just this film. He's not just some guy who's just randomly running around the fucking woods. He has a home. He has an altar for his mother. I mean, again, following the timeline, he's been harassed and all of in his mind, uh, attacked and hurt just trying to service the woods, you know, because apparently Jason's some sort of young Republican. He hates people that smoke pot. If you have sex, he kills you. Uh, and, and, you know, no young babies, nothing like that. You got to get rid of him. Um, he's very hardcore. He'll ship your ass to Mexico would be, I guess, the next big thing. Probably voted for Ronald Reagan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I, I, like I said, again, I find that less interesting than a care like because we never go back to that cabin in the woods. We never go back to what his life is like. Oh, he never makes it, it home. I mean, we're following the story that he from part two going into part four has never gotten to make it home. You know, he's possibly killing his way to get back there. And then you enter the Jarvis family dynamic, which is the first time other characters start becoming important in the series. You know, in part five, entirely other characters are what is important, but you have a full different story than what you have going on outside of this. In part two, part three, part one, you don't, I don't feel, they're just people coming to work on the camp. You don't get, on part one, maybe you get a little bit more of her going back to California, and then in part two, you've got the child psychology degree and all that idea, but they're just throwaways to me. You have the family, which is the most important, that they're surviving and that they're moving on, and then the integrity of their health and what's going to happen afterwards after this Jason attack is 
what drives and I keep I, I feel keeps part four on the ground with emotion. Well, you might not feel this way, but I I feel this way, uh, like about the series in itself. That you know, when you get, start getting to something like part four, it becomes less about the forest and the woods and the like. What can happen when you're alone in the woods? It becomes more about just like a set piece. You're just stuck in this one sort of location. But what and about it's not the about explore? What about the beginning? You, I think you get one of the greatest scenes in the entire series at the beginning of part four. You you get uh, Crystal Lake alone for the first time. The location – they went back to the actual location that the end of part three was filmed at and set up a little bit. We're going to do a little bit more – a bigger scene. But you've got the ambulance pulling in and the police explaining everybody's dead. Uh, cops are literally all over the area, and they finally slowly pull out. You've got this helicopter scene just kind of showing the darkness setting in, that Jason has succeeded, his job is done. He's dead, everyone's dead, everything's wiped scene. out. Yeah, that's but it's haunting scene enough. like that in the film. It's it haunting, but it's not as haunting as, say, like a campfire story of this legend that is prolificating through this area, that you're alone but in the woods not, with your friends. That's not Friday the 13th. That's just Friday the 13th, too. The series itself as a whole is Jason slaughtering and killing people in the woods. So you're at a cabin in the woods still. We keep going back still. to this. Yeah, but <laughs> that's all the point the of the series. Had <laughs> of what but it becomes big, later. Your big thing is which is the best in the series, and you're picking personally part two because you relate to it, and it's got this camp slasher feeling where the entire series and the best in the series has got to be which is the goriest which is the most prolific activity of jason which is the best shot part four you can relate to on a nice level oh, because it's a great oh, camp counselor movie shot? but it's not the best part two movie is way better shot than no part way four part four is oh the best way shot. better joseph zito way took a better. lot out I completely disagree. Part two just looks like an average 80s slasher to me. It has no pacing. And that's what makes light. it work. Yeah, but it's, it's not. It doesn't look like an average genre. slasher. It, it's, it's not a Friday the like 13th movie. Yeah, that's a problem. Because it's it not becomes the, bastardized later. They bastardized yeah, what it was. It's its own movie. It's its own camp slasher movie. It doesn't even have the same feeling and pacing of the first movie, which was almost nonstop Thank slaughter. God. Bunch. Well, yeah, but that's the point. The first movie is the most wholesome in the series because it started how things pivot. So if you stray from that, you're straying from the Sean S. Cunningham series. So staying with purity, I'm still saying it's part four because it falls in to what the series is, Jason killing teenagers. Part two as well, a whole saying, is a better movie, basically though, just you just told me it's though, own is environment. Part four is a lot closer to part eight. So it's more encompassing with what the series became. So fucking what? Because like well, part no, two part is so much more of a complete film than part four. Because part four is almost nothing. It's mindless killing. And but part two it actually film, has sort of a plot. A complete film is still straying away from what people want out of a Jason movie. That's the complaint with the remake. It's Jason running around and, and, and all these characters, so you're mad that you actually got to know who the characters are because you just want people to be killed because that's what a Jason movie is. I mean, that's the same issue with the, the Friday or the Nightmare. Uh, God damn, there's too many of these. The Halloween remakes. Too much personalization, and everyone agrees with that. There was no necessary meaning to give him a giant backstory oh, for, and to let everyone for know. Michael Myers. But yeah, I don't give a shit about Michael Myers. I'm, like for the characters, though, the but characters Jason's are a what I want character. 
And he, he wasn't – he didn't even exist. They just brought him in and created him in part two as a cheap throwaway. So if you're going to use a cheap throwaway, make it as hardcore as possible. And I feel that's what they do in part four, that, all right, it, this makes no sense in the first place, so here we go. And you've just got some amazing sequences. The Crispin Glover scene – well, it's the, that's all part two is. It's just trying to sell part one again, and it's completely lazy. The character of Jason in oh, part two is never touched upon again. You took too much time displaying him, and that's the problem. You gave this humanity and this scared, feral animal look to him, and nobody wanted that, so they had to turn into the psychopathic killer, which to this day, every slasher – I mean, people might say Halloween's their influence, but in the long term, everything pretty much comes from Jason. If you're a Halloween fan, obviously you're going to use a steady cam, and there's going to be long pacing and synth soundtrack. So there's there's a difference between a Jason fan and a Halloween fan. I feel steady I mean, cam a bit of a difference, but I mean, if you go back, it's, well, film wise, part two, it's a hell of a lot classier of a film. It's shot like a drama. It's shot just like fucking a love story. Of the same we basic gotta, era of films, and we gotta it, like that's what sit down it. and come up with like strong points because I'm going for what is the most quintessential Jason Jason movie, but you're going for what I'm is the better best actual film. movie. Yes. Well, you're going for like what, like what do you think about when you think of a Friday Thirteenth movie? I don't give a shit what people think about a Friday Thirteenth movie. I'm just talking about. What's a better movie? What's filmed better? What acting is better? What four. characterization is better? It's still part four. It's not part four. It's part two because part two is reality based. It's a reality but that's based. Your film. defense that you like things more with a reality base. It's not the fact that it's shot better. It's a better budget. The gore is better. The cuts are better. I just can't get behind the white not, flashing though. light. It, that works in a theater, and if I'd have seen it when it was released in theaters, I'd argue, yeah, that's great, but it does nothing for me outside of it, so having no rewatchability doesn't help. I mean, that's like Avatar. Sure, it was a great movie, but I'm not going to go sit and watch it nine times at home. Friday 4, I'll still sit down and watch over and over well, again okay. and get shocked by what's happening. You're almost having a debate that I've had with uh, one of my friends who – when we talk about horror films, he's talking about, well, this is, this is such a, like, he loved Terrifier, and I thought Terrifier sucked his dick. I thought it was boring and just focused on kill scenes. Who gives a shit? But look yeah, how hardcore the kill scenes are. Then go watch a fucking, like, a fucking gore reel on YouTube if that's all you're interested in. I'm not interested in just watching gore. I'm interested in watching a film that has gore elements in it. And that is part two. That is a film that has characterization, well shot, well orchestrated overall, that happens to have a like psychopath killing people in it. And when you get to just down to the nitty gritty and you're just watching kill scenes, what's the point? Just go watch Mondo Kane or something like that if you're just wanting to watch gore and violence. Gore and, and violence I feel that's the later half. It's the money shot. It's not the and entirety I, of what the product is. And I still, if we're, if we're having to rely on personal feelings, I get bored watching part two. I don't care. I care about you displaying and showing me characters and emotion. I mean, that was the biggest problem with Prometheus. Why the hell am I supposed to care that they're crashing the ship and saving the human race? You didn't even give me a reason to care about them. But in Alien, 
very briefly, you allow me to get a personality and see who every crew member on the Nostromo is and allow myself to attach myself to one of them. And part two, it's and just monotonous two. to me. It's boring. <laughs> I don't, it's too much it's stuff. It's so boring. You can go ahead with part four and you get a brief display of who everyone is and then their interactions folding with the other characters lets you pick what you want to see. And again, focusing on the Jarvis family, that's the point. You're watching them while you're still given ammunition. So both crowds are pleased here. You get the people that want the mindless gore, and then somebody that wants a plot in the story can focus on what's happening with the Jarvis family, and everything's combined. To me, you get a more perfect horror movie with both of those aspects coming forward. And not to mean this as a dig, but a lot of the hardcore fans complain and want things like uh, Jason goes to hell, some of the just gratuitous scenes of violence, and a lot of those fans are like toe-tag guys. All they want is sheer violence, and not debating the integrity of the August Underground series, but for the most part, it's Fred Vogel yelling and hitting people with a hammer. There's nothing going on whatsoever, but you're given this idea that there's a story and that they all have names and that they're characters and know each other, and you go into part two and it gets even deeper and intertwined. And that, to me, is an issue. That's like with Friday the 13th Part 2. You're trying to connect things and give it this deep, rich story of people I'm supposed to care about, and then at the same time you're throwing me this feral Jason idea that i got to get behind, and somehow feels sympathy he just is a scared dog he saw his mom get killed can't you accept it from that angle it's just too much and i get bored with it i enjoy the aspects of it on its own movie but i almost have to take friday the 13th too as a different movie you want to watch the series you go one three four with more interesting aspects to the story what it I doesn't like... go anywhere so it's not interesting it comes plenty of places part four doesn't go anywhere They all die just the same. So it goes into the Tommy Jarvis series and the exploration of who he is, which on its own is still its own movies. Part two, it's just dead. Who cares? Why give me all this display of I'm going to get out of the wheelchair and then you kill him in the next scene? It wouldn't have mattered if you said that or not anymore. It just takes its own regard and steps on it. Because part two is a singular piece. It's not like it... No one knew if there was going to be a continuing series after this. It was just... Let's try to make an interesting film that complements the first one, and then after that, whatever. We probably might not make another one. I mean, Paramount was always very negative towards this series and wanted to end them as soon as they could. They enjoyed making the money, but they always felt like like fucking sleaze merchants putting them out. Well, I mean, you're not going to get continuing through part two. It wasn't an artistic business meeting of we have to sit down and figure out how to continue this and make it a standalone movie. It's how do we knock this off again and come up with an idea that Jason idea seemed all right to the point that Savini even laughed it off. And and it's judged as one of the weakest because Savini didn't step in. And that's a bad thing because the gore itself, I'm not saying he was the king of the 80s, but the gore itself still follows through despite me not liking how it's cut. It's different from part one, too, because you have a lot more of its own feeling to it. Part one sets things di- like nothing else appears as part one did. Everything's kind of cheap and thrown away. And I guess that's kind of them referencing Hatchet for Honeymoon or Bay of Blood, whatever you like to call it. <laughs> I mean, uh, by part two, we are just making a film, a film where we're trying to continue this character on because we want to make something called Friday 13th Part 2. So let's use Jason, and let's make its own singular story, its own compact thing. 
And then when you get to something like part four, it's just, I mean, it's trying to fucking throw these loose ends together from part three. And then like, maybe See, we what can I think. spawn this off into something else after this. And that's what modern filmmaking has become. It's not complete full ideas. It's, well, how do we work this into the next sequel? Who gives a fuck? Make a complete film. Part two is a complete film. And part What's four is just kind of loose scenes. Every cinema blood sport, we start off with a very clear written at the beginning. This is going to be the battle of which is the greatest movie in the series in its own thing. And when you start losing, you always change it. You know, it's just what's the better movie. So I'm still defending the greatest in the entire series is part four and disagreeing, too, with what you just said, because this was the final film. Their point and Savini coming back is this is over. We don't care what you do. Final film. Yeah, but that's your defense with part two. They're going to make this as its own standalone movie. Well, that wasn't the point. That's not what they were doing. They were trying to make a chain of cheap movies to keep spiraling out so they invented the cheapest thing possible, the Jason character. So it isn't some standalone thing. It's the first display of them being cheesy and being cheap. So you can't say part four is them just doing the same thing when that's the foundation of part two. At least with part four, they introduced new characters and tried to give a, a final ending to things. When they brought it back in five... I'm not going to compare it to Halloween 3, but it's the similar aspect. Okay, we'll do the old switcheroony, and instead of making a whole new story that happens on Friday the 13th, somebody's mimicking Jason. That would have been an acceptable ending for the series also, but part six, Tom Matthews coming back as Tommy Jarvis. I, 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 I like part six, but God, it's a fucking mess. Just what a mess of a movie, and what's happening in it? For I mean, oh, there's truck chasing, and then he's in jail for a long time. And Kane Hodder. Sweet, sweet Kane, Kane Hodder. Hodder's not in part six. He's in part seven. Part th- That's his first film. <laughs> okay, so who's part six? It's not Ted White. DJ Graham. Uh, yeah, Ted White, again, yeah. I like Jason in part two. I really like Steve Dash. Uh, I, I, A lot more Manic in part two. Yeah, he's much more feral, but Ted White was... I loved his mannerisms. I loved what he brought to the table. He was a very touchy Jason. He was a much more animated Jason and much more physical, uh, as referenced earlier, smashing the head into the shower. He throws people very... And again, I'd say Manic is a good description for him. Corey Feldman described him as a, like a kind of touchy Jerry Lee Lewis guy. And uh, just you know, very huggy, very handshaky, very slappy on the back, and bringing that performance into something very menacing. And he's an old-school stunt guy, so this... To him was probably a little bit below his liking of what he wanted to do. He'd done stunts for John Wayne and throughout the 80s. He did a, a lot of stuff. He did Starman, which uh, actually ended up helping doing or helping bringing Friday the 13th Part 4, the final chapter, in. He was on set doing something on Starman. They were supposed to be doing an interview with the director, and he passed it off and said, you know what, Ted White, why don't you talk about the last movie you did. And they did a whole interview talking about him playing Jason Voorhees. And they did a giant write up of old school Hollywood meets new school. And it kind of helped bring the movie forward with, I guess the old eyes of Hollywood, that this was going to be a bit different than your average Jason movie. But Ted white brought something that I think really lacks with Jason afterwards, that he was the last one to actually get hurt when he gets the, machete into the hand and his hand splits in half he's in shock when he gets hit with the hammer he gets mad and he chases the final girl he's, he's actually fucking busting ass to catch her and to show that you've hurt me and i'm tired of this he still has the feral attitude and afterwards it's a mocking of itself part five jason is fun though because you're supposed to have 
the idea that Jason is a, a big Part character. Five. Somebody, well, people are reading about it's, him. You know, he's in like serial killer he's magazine. Become a myth. That, at yeah. that point. And part five is where we start getting the unstoppable Jason, where he just slowly menaces and walks and doesn't do any hardcore, like, you know, like, he's not, he's not like really doing any sort of aerobic exercise to keep going. He's just slowly trying to kill people. And like, that's what the, the series ended up becoming. And I just find that a lot less interesting than, a crazy dude in the woods who's running around killing people. I mean, he's a loose cannon in part two, and he's becoming a lot more measured throughout the series where it's, there's a lot of pathos behind the character, and I just find that a lot less interesting than something like part two. I think when you move into the demon Jason is where I'm I'm personally lost, and there's no point in returning. I don't find it anywhere near as fun, and I think a lot of just... I hate using that word twice in a row, but what makes the series fun and what gives it its own energy is completely lost when he's unstoppable. And it's all right. I mean, you're really judging things for the gore, I guess, five onward. You've got all right story and all right character. I mean, uh, some of the kids are throwaways. You've got the one stuttering guy, and I, I, I can't stand him. Mark Venturini was the best. The whole movie should have just been about Vic. I want a backstory to Vic. <laughs> Vic the asshole? He's a he was an asshole. asshole. Why was he? He was chopping <laughs> wood on his own. He told him to fuck and then off. The, and then the kid came up to him and annoyed him, so he killed him. What a great that guy. Kid, that kid raped Corey Haim, all right? He fucking deserved it. Yes, but that's outside of the film universe. That's just oh. reality. We can't, we can't base it that's around even reality and film logic. Um I love Demon. Well, I, I love Reckless. You've got fun characters. I th- okay, part five is maybe the last one you actually really have fun characters because Tommy Jarvis sucks. And Tom Matthews is great. I, I love him. But Tommy Jarvis sucks in the next one. There's I don't care. And then what's after well, that? Goes to, to hell. Or, goes Tom to hell. Matthews no, Manhattan. Not really Tommy Jarvis. He just becomes kind of Tom Matthews, uh, like a dashing, handsome gentleman. He's not really that same kid like Corey Feldman was. I think John Shepard in part five played it a little bit more. I mean, it's not that I mind Tom Matthews. I mean, I think he's an overall interesting actor, but by that point, the character completely lost what he started out being. He's not that same like weird kid anymore. He's just, he's a, he's a fucking man on a white horse for Christ's sakes by part six. What happens in part five that Tommy is in this home. I mean, where's did they ever touch upon his sister or what's happened? I mean, obviously the mother's dead, which I'll concede to a point. You have a great setup in part four of the mother dying and you don't see her. There was an ending that was shot that wasn't used and it was better it wasn't used that shows the mother's body in the bathtub later on that Jason took her to and display. It's the same but... shot from the Prowler, too, for Christ's sake. Yeah. <laughs> like he, just he, he ripped himself literally off did the there. same thing he did in the Prowler. I'm glad and that's they why he didn't about. use it. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's just he's lost his mind after part four. So, like, he's been in, like, five years after part four, and now he's just this quiet, introverted dude who's been in group homes uh, for years, and now he's finally getting out, and then they're putting him in this halfway house to as, as a teen to, like, work through his issues more. And then you completely lose that in part six to where yeah. he's just like, yeah, I've been in the Institute, but... I'm super handsome and my clothes look good. And it's just, I don't know. I think they bastardized the character a little bit by that point, which is fine. I mean, I'm not, 
that's the thing we have to keep in mind with these little debate sessions that we have. Like, I don't particularly hate on any of these. I like part four. I'm not saying part four I is hate a one. shitty movie at all. Uh, one I, I is probably my least favorite. <laughs> one of not, my least favorite one. ones. I hate the original. One in, I don't hate part one. I hate one movie in particular in the series, and that is part seven. I can't stand part seven. Boys and ghouls, I'm Handsome Jack. I'm here to talk to you about COPD. I hate seven and eight. I think seven eight, and eight I, are garbage. Eight I can take. I won't sit and watch it seriously, but I enjoy it. And to me, it's one of my favorites in the series just because it's absolute throwaway garbage. Goes to Hell is a nice return. I like, I like Jason. Hell. Yeah, I like Jason Goes to Hell. I always did. And to me, and I was thinking about this the other day, what really stands out is that I'd seen three... And two, I knew that much. But when Goes to Hell came out, I remember that was probably the first time on my own I went out of my way to rent a Jason movie and to make a night out of it to sit down and recognize what's going on. And that was, I remember distinctly for years, the heart-eating scene. And that always stuck out with me. And it was it was just a fun movie. It was much different, and it was well, moving they, yeah, into a different they tried year to do something of filmmaking. Different. They tried to do something different in Part 7. Yeah, body-hopping storyline ain't the best fucking thing on Earth, but... The kills were interesting. The story overall, I mean, it's kind of dopey. But, I mean, it's just an interesting twist on a series that I got in stale. And for the people that you can always, at least for me personally, I can always tell my least favorite Friday the 13th fans because their favorite movie is always fucking Part 7. And I don't understand why they like Part 7 so much. It's dumb as shit. Sure, it's Kane Hodder's first movie. Okay, I get that. But And the Jason design itself is kind of interesting looking, that zombie Jason. But it's just a bad movie. The characterization is bad. All the characters are bad. It's, it's, it's just, a rotten that's idea. like the height of parody with that it's, film. It's just, that is the self-parody. Well, I mean, you even said it to me. It's Carrie versus Jason, and they couldn't get the rights to do it. And, and it's just an awful idea. I can't get behind anything, and it's usually even rewatching it for this entire thing. Just to give a fair judgment of which was the best movie, I couldn't really enjoy sitting through it. Then you move into part eight. I can at least – the beginning of the movie is so boring. I mean, they're on a boat in fucking Canada pretty much, and the whole movie was practically shot in Canada. I think there's – what, two actual scenes in New York City? You got him walking down the street in Times Square and pushing the punks out of his way. And I think there's another New York shot, but very, very minimal. And that's an awful selling point. Yeah, the entire movie is a mess. mess and then you, movie. you transition into hell, which refreshes the, the zombie idea and then gives it something new. I'll even throw this out there, and I'm sure you might find it questionable. Jason in space isn't that bad. Eh. It is what it's it nothing is. I good, won't say that but it's, much about it. Yeah, it's <laughs> it I, I mean, good. I don't see a point in just uh, everyone absolutely shits on it and destroys the movie, and it's not that bad. It's reminiscent of the other ones. It's 
a throwaway 2000s movie that uh, the entire generation of 1999 to 2010 or so is so much dead stuff just just no feeling no tone uh the editing style was awful movies like Valentine's Day or not Valentine's Day the uh the guy Valentine. the urban legends Valentine yeah Urban Legends 2, just very flaccid, boring movies, no tone, all corporate sponsorship. Look how many times we can put a Pepsi can. Yeah. They're about making all of your budget back on opening weekend with a title alone. Who gives a shit about the rewatch value or anything else? And I can't get behind it. That's kind of what Netflix is doing to an extent with, like, that Stanley Tukey ripoff of A Quiet Place and – Getting uh, those are like higher budget asylum movies. That's like snakes on a train, pretty much. Don't fucking kid me. What are you trying to sell me? Well, like okay, I mean, getting back to part seven a little bit. Um, like one of my you can with the fan base a lot of it has to do with how old you were when the films were like coming out and stuff. And I think a lot of the younger generation, the people in their late twenties and early thirties, are more into part seven because that's what they remember as a kid and. To illustrate that point, notice like so much of the merchandising that you get of Friday Thirteenth is that specific Jason design, and I think that's like Part Seven is where we really got into just the merchandising aspect of the character of Jason. Noted How the we fact that him. like that after Part Eight, when they um, sold Friday Thirteenth to New Line Cinema, they didn't sell Friday the Thirteenth. They sold the character of Jason specifically. New Line Cinema was not allowed to call into their movies Friday the 13th Part Anything. That's why it's called Jason Goes to Hell. That's why it's called Jason X, because they literally just bought the character of Jason, because they had Sean Cunningham. Paramount still owns the title of Friday the 13th. So that's like, and that's what like it eventually became, which was just this, corporate thing it was just we've bought a character and that's what the important thing is this character not what the series is about not like what the series was about before we got to this point at all it's just about what we can do with it now which is wherever let's take it to fucking space why not Eh, it's just just kind of i don't know i see a bastardization just being topical with things that are going on right now jamie lee curtis has met with uh jason bloom and they posted a selfie that's supposed to be alluring and lead us to believe that there's going to be another Halloween. Here's my problem with Great. that. When Jamie Lee Curtis did H2O, she came out and she said, this isn't going to be like the other lame ones that they had me come back and do. This is going to be the best one ever. Then she came back and did the next uh, one and said, this isn't going to be like all the other lame ones I've done before. This is going to be the best one ever. And then she came back and she's done the new one and said, this isn't going to be like the lame ones I did before. This is going to be the best one ever. So I get it. You're a brand, Jamie, and, and you're, you're selling yourself and you're selling the well, Laurie Strode character. What, there's nothing for me to believe anymore. I've not seen the new Halloween because I have zero interest in seeing the new Halloween. It's not even like I have a bad taste left in my mouth because of Rob Zombie. Those had their own fun and their own world. I can take them for what they are. I mean, I've done a full commentary on it, and I wasn't awful. I enjoy the movies for what they are more than I could take them going back and saying, well, we got Carpenter to give a thumbs up because we gave him $35,000 to do a new fucking soundtrack for the movie with his kid, and he can tour with it. And uh, it takes place directly after part two now. Fuck the other ones. I'm just tired of that. That's some Marvel Comics retconning stuff, and I'm just tired of it. You're just selling Michael Myers masks at this point. You're not selling a new Halloween movie. Most definitely, because, I mean, really what happened with H2O was John Carpenter was 
getting involved in it, Deborah Hill and Jamie Lee Curtis, and then they all left. Jamie Lee Curtis was obligated to stay contractually, but in her contract, she's also said, I get to kill Michael in this one. That's how we're going to end it. But the CEO said, or actually it was more of Mustafa Akkad said, well, you can't kill off my cash cow like that. So how about this? And basically they put the stipulation that they shot footage from like when they were shooting part seven of the ambulance attendant that she ultimately kills at the end of H2O. So they could yeah, Michael possibly, crushes his vocal cords yeah. and they do the mask switch. Yeah, so they like so they can go to uh, Halloween Resurrection, which is just an abomination of a film. And Jamie Lee Curtis wanted nothing to do with it. But again, she was contractually obligated to appear in that film. But she also said that, yeah, if you're going to make me be in this, I'll be in it for fucking 10 minutes and you kill me and I never have to come back. And that's what they did. And ultimately, they the threw a bunch of money in and said, we're going to retcon all that shit since they show kind of sucked. And which is a Steve Miner film, director of Friday Thirteenth Part Two. I hate H2O. It's one of my least favorite Halloween films because Worse, it is boring as shit. It is that whole Scream era thing of let's cast attractive young people from the WB and stick them in a horror film. And it is dry. There's no violence in it. There's no suspense in it. There's no characterization. And all they've done is turn Jamie Lee Curtis into an alcoholic. That's pretty much all they well, did. That, and then the new one, the Blumhouse one, they turned her into an alcoholic again. Sweet. Well, that's what I mean. That's refreshing my point, that every few years, Jamie Lee Curtis comes back and says, this is going to be the best one ever. And there's nothing sellable in that. I remember when she did this 20 years ago with H2O, and I remember when she did it a year ago. And what, until she dies, is it just going to be every few years she comes back and keeps trying to sell me the exact same thing? The only difference between this new Halloween, Rob Zombie's Halloween, and Halloween 2 is the fucking mask. You're doing nothing original. And I mean, going back to our original point here, I'll say with both movies, part two and part four, you have something original and never done before with the characters, the kills, and the filming of the movies. Both of them, I would say, stand out uh, as prime examples of the greatest in the Friday the 13th They're series. They're both pretty fresh, I'd say. Yeah, I'd I mean, say you're, you're correct on that one. They're both mostly fresh ideas in that, that series of films. Out of everything else, there like you know you could do an argument of what is better, but the prime movies in the series are part two and part four. You're not going to get any better. You're not going to get anything more enjoyable. Part three is great. You get the mask for the first time. You get sort of the the iconic ultra killing Jason, Jason for the first time. Yeah, it's great. It looks great. My favorite Jason really design and how he looks is part five. I love the part five look and feel to yeah. it, even though it's not Jason. So I guess I, if I had to pick. If I had to pick one that was actually Jason, my favorite, it's Sackhead. Like I'd say part my favorite Jason is part three, um, Richard Brooker, because he gave a certain I don't give a fuck attitude to Jason, especially with the spear gun death, because after he shoots her in the eye with it, he just throws it down and just kind of strolls off. Like, I don't give a fuck. I'm just doing this because I'm just doing it. And you got he's a, a lot more like... Before. Yeah, he's a lot more vicious, I think, overall in part three. He's a lot more of a unrelenting killer. And when you take the mask off, nonchalant. I think that's a really good makeup. Like a very, yeah, nonchalant is a perfect word for the Jason in part three. Um, and like when you take the mask off, I think that's like the perfect version of 
Tom Savini's original makeup grown up into adulthood. The perfect version. And part four, it's just a bunch of fucking rubber. And part six, it's just a zombie face of nothing. And then when you take um, the mask off in part seven, he just looks like some kind of... It, it looks like a leftovers from prison. The, um, the oh Empire God, yeah. film, which... Kane Hodder starred in, so I mean that's, I mean that, that 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 should, I mean it should look a little bit like that character, but at the same time it's just like, Part Seven seems to me more of a sequel to the film Prison than anything because it just has the same look and feel to, it, even though Prison was directed by Rennie Harlan and not John Beekler who directed Part Seven but did the makeup for Prison, so I mean all that kind of streams together into a mess of shit, but I. At that point in the 80s, like horror movies were just about marketing and about popcorns and about opening weekend. It was all about making as much money as possible and just getting the shit out of the theater. So it's just not my favorite era of horror films. The late 80s is pretty fucking bad. And then the late 90s were god fucking awful. We're just now getting back to the point of having really interesting horror films. And not so much in the slasher genre because the slasher genre is pretty dead because if you look at any slasher film from the last 10 years, it's just literally a recycling of stuff that happened in the eighties because I grew up watching movies like this and I want to make one. Okay. Well do it, but just like do something interesting with it. Don't just, okay. It's just another guy in a fucking Halloween mask. Change it up a little bit. (laughs) Give it some spice. Change Change it up a little bit. Yeah, do something a little bit different with it. Or if you're going to make an 80s horror film, then make an 80s horror film. Like, set it in the 80s. Don't, like, make references to it. Don't, like, joke about, like, oh, this is the 80s and I have a mullet and blah, blah. No, just literally, like, I mean, sort of do what, like, Ty West did with House of the Devil and set it in the 80s. Do that with a a modern slasher film. Just set it in the 80s and try to get as close to an 80s slasher film as you possibly can. With special think, effects, the same thing, no CG. Well, I think just removing technology is a big thing and a big step with modern filmmaking that a lot of people try and write in technology and, and have to write in right now. And if you exclude something like that and you take just it out of your universe completely, um, like Neon Demon, there's hardly any technology sh- thrown, shown throughout the entire movie except for one scene between Jenna Malone and um, Elle Fanning. And she's got a very, very dated and old iPhone, and that's it. You can exclude things and you have a timeless feeling to it. And that's something that was really great about 80s and 90s movies is because of the lack of technology, you could still relate to the movie 20, 30 years later. But now when you're watching something and see the old Samsung, you kind of laugh at it and realize, oh, this is 2013, whatever. It takes away and it gives you an opening into the fourth wall and it takes away the enjoyment of what you're trying to experience. So by removing that, like I hate when you're watching something and they have to look up something in a movie you lose a whole scene by having them sit down and using some fake google oh oh oh, look at this i found it on wahoo search this is the name of the ancient demon and look i found the professor at whatever college and i'm going to skype call yeah you know i'm going to skype vincent d'onfrio for two seconds and get the scene with him because we can't afford to actually do him and i understand that but still be go to the fucking library Come up, write an actual scene of them having to figure out who the demon is or finding some ancient book. Give me some character development and some story as to how things are happening and why they're happening. Don't just Google it. That was a big problem I had with the Pet Cemetery remake. There's a scene where the doctor sits down 
and Google's Wendigos and all this shit. And I'm just like, why is this in here at all? Why do we have to have somebody getting on the internet to look something up in every fucking film now? That, too, will be outdated. You know, the next 10 years, are all these platforms still going to be around? Are people going to be using computers the same way in 30 years? The first Friday the 13th movie is, what, 40 years old now? So in 40 years, are Google references and iPhone references going to work? Your artistic piece just became throwaway because you had to include a Googling scene. Right around it, libraries are still open. There's thousands of ways for your character to figure out which ancient demon from Solomon's Key is haunting the doll they got at the yard sale. It, you can write around it. Yes, that would probably be the most important aspect, I'd say, for young filmmakers out there. Before you start worrying about your budget, before you start worrying about your cast and all these things, write a fucking script. Sit down. Yeah. Don't just write something and go, that's good enough. It's not good enough. Rewrite it. Think about what you you're might, trying to achieve. Not just because well, you, you want to make a to, movie. You might have gone to NYU or graduated from Savini School and know how to do a lot, and no one's saying you can't. But take some creative writing courses or watch some old movies. Use the old Tarantino trick. Watch some Golden Age Hollywood. Oh, wow, they wrote their ways around it because they didn't have iPhones. Wild. Figure out how things were done. It's not that hard. I mean, it's not like we're asking for much, but like the perfection that we touched upon at the beginning of the show, having to do the rewind sequences that annoyed me. At least somebody sat down and came up with something new instead of like I discussed. Fuck it. We'll just do a flashback over and over and over again. Um, The Conjuring has not the Conjuring. um, Fuck. What a bad reference. Uh, Joe Bob just showed it with uh, the changeling. The Changeling with Detective Kinderman, yeah. The Changeling is just filled with flashback sequences, and it gets so stale. We're going back to the same room in the same sepia lens, and it's just the same thing over and over and over. Up, he's banging and throwing the ball down the stairs. We're back in time again. It's monotonous, and it drags on me. And I think it's a great movie. I'm not saying it's not. It's, it's a terrific, great performance with George C. Scott. But you could have done something a little bit different than gratuitously showing it. The perfection shows you something it's just taking integrity and some time with your writing trying to come up with a different well, concept you, think about the perfection you know what you didn't see in the perfection that much at all that i can even remember i mean i might be wrong about this do you remember cell phones playing like really any part in the film at all somebody might have whipped one out but it, does it figure into the plot in any way in shape one, or form but no in one, one flashback scene. Yeah, and that's only to establish uh, that the character still had signal, that it was alive. Yes. So still, yeah, it, it's not really – they could have shown it again in many different ways. But it doesn't become this whole thing. Like one of the new tropes in films that just annoys the shit out of me, and it's a small thing, but it's just – I find it annoying, is when you have some, a character texting, and instead of just showing the phone, we've got to animate – Animate on the screen, text bubbles popping up of what this conversation is like. Oh my God. Can you Again, fucking write something better than this? Please. Vapid fading technology. And that's just appealing to what trends are that everyone has a smartphone at this point, an updated one outside of you. Everyone is using different forms of Instagram and social media and showing pictures of themselves. And it's a big thing. It's part of the Kardashian culture, and it's what everyone does. It's what your niece and nephew and your mom is doing. Everyone's doing it. It's Videodrome taking over the world. But in 10 years, 
things are going to change it completely. Well, why do you say that, Hank? How can you tell the future? What was a cell phone like 10 years ago? It was a flip phone that you could play space games on, Space Invaders and Snake, and it took you 20 minutes to text one thing to your friend, and you couldn't make calls after nine. And, and breakaway phones Each even text then, was a dollar. <laughs> yeah, you watch old movies and you, oh, wow, what an old phone, flip phones. No, that was like eight or nine years ago. That was while you were a teenager. That's while you were in your 20s. It's still somewhat relevant. They're still around. Technology is going to massively change. You go back and you laugh at movies from the late 90s because of dial-up and, and computers, which, again, it's the in the 2000s and uh, the 90s and even in the 80s. We have to show computers. We uh, What was that? goddamn movie uh, where they take over the military camp and the kids have the special computers and they can hack their way out of the problem. I don't yeah. remember. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know. Military camp gets military. taken over the school, like a military school. Are you talking about fucking masterminds? Yes, I am. I am. That's exactly With what I was referencing. Uh, Patrick Stewart? Yes. Yes, with Patrick Stewart oh, and the kids shit. all of us. Yeah, and what it a takes reference. place in like yeah, but it takes place in the late nineties, so the kid's a hacker and he hacks the sprinkle system and it's just this dumb stuff that you know anything about computers now in two thousand and nineteen, even the movie Hackers. You can't do that. It's ridiculous. But when it came out, nobody knew how this technology worked. And so it was amazing. You cannot take the movie Hackers seriously. You cannot take Mastermind seriously whatsoever anymore. That's gonna happen. To your movie, your iPhone well, movie, just, like Steven Soderbergh back around. Like Soderbergh yes. shot the whole iPhone movie, and that's great and wowing for using that. But at the same time, it's almost like David it'll Lynch's look, rant. Like, don't fucking look like do shit that. In Twenty years. Yeah, it's just gonna look but, fucking dumb, and that's like again the anti CGI rant. Like Avatar, it was amazing for a day until somebody one upped it a week later. And now it looks pretty dated. Bringing the whole Titanic thing back around, awful. though. Um, like, with Friday the 13th, uh, the original ones, like, let's just focus on two and four. Despite them being completely vapid films, just, like, not much story or anything else, they wrote around things. They, like, in the writing, figured out how to carry the story all the way through and forward. And well, even like the most modern thing. flasher films, we're just not doing that anymore. You have a meeting with a bunch of people and somebody that can create this effect. Tom Savini comes up with this microwave in the head thing. And if he'd have managed to do it, I'm sure it would have looked great. But he sat down with a core group of people and the writer and the actors and Joe Zito and everyone involved and came up with this idea and had to sell it and it was vetoed. So they, what, what did they do? They sat around and wrote a different ending. They didn't keep, okay, well, we got to keep this cell phone thing. We have to involve the iPhone. We have to make sure that this is in the movie. No, they wrote around it and came up with a different aspect and a different idea. And that's what is core involvement in a movie. When you're trying to make something, let's say you're an independent filmmaker, you doing this completely on your own, you can. But you need to sit down and have your writer and your cast and have these people. It doesn't hurt to practice. It doesn't hurt to sit down and come up, okay, have your two leads run the scene, and if it doesn't work, write. Now, involving your actors a lot of the times gives people egos, and they want to write their own scenes. But keep your writer on deck. Work things out. If an idea isn't working, don't force it. Come up with something new. Forcing film is, is against the point. If you have to force it, 
it's not captured right. You have you've <laughs> lied to the audience. You're you're lying to what's going on. But I'm not saying like Friedkin firing a gun. That's not that's completely different. That's not forcing it. If you have to lie to get your shot, you're not doing it right. By any means necessary, don't hurt people, but get the shot. Never stop filming. That reminds me. Don't, don't lie to me about the phone. That's my point. Like, it reminds me about, like, was it four or five years ago when all those Sony emails leaked? Um, and there was a bunch of different shit in those emails. But one of the ones that I always found fucking hilarious in telling of the film industry of modern times is one producer was talking about the next Spider-Man film. And he was, like, laying out all these things that needed to be in it. Like, Spider-Man needs to be have a Twitter account. Spider-Man needs to um, use his, his cell phone a lot more and take selfies. And not only that, um, can we work dubstep into it somewhere? Jesus fucking Christ, that's all you care about is just working modern trends. And this, ask yourself this, does it have any – will it – progress your story any more than where it is now? Are you just throwing it in there just to be throwing it in? And the answer to that is you're just throwing it in there. So, I mean, it's just like, at least in um, the more recent Spider-Man film, uh, was it um, Homecoming? I Don't guess. ask me. It was, yeah, you, you didn't see it. It's, it's a pretty goddamn good movie, actually. And Spider-Man uses his cell phone a lot in it, but they were able to work it through the story to where it makes sense for the story for the most part, to where it's not just him randomly playing around with his fucking phone for no reason. Um, so it's just write something. And like to slasher films, to that point of slasher films, write a slasher film that speaks to you. Like stop trying to reproduce something that has already passed. It's gone, you fucks. It's already over with. So unless you're going well, to everybody it wants in the to 1980s, be- do something different. Everybody wants to be Quentin Tarantino, and that's the thing now. i got to make an homage to my favorite movie. I, I love this, so I want to make something similar to it, and that's good and fine. But why don't you take yourself and think of how you would react if you were the nerdy guy? Don't always write the story about some suave detective or the jock getting laid or some person that's got emotional problems. Maybe just take the nerdy guy and see what happens with it and write a relatable group of people and put them in a situation and, again, just try and take technology out of things. It, it just It's not that it's overwhelming, but it gets to a point that I, if I'm already sitting there with my phone in my hand and I've detached from the movie and it's just a bunch of people with their phone in their hands, what's going on? What's the point? Well, hey, Hank, play the sound effect again. Yeah. You know what that sound means? Show's that sound over. means we spent 20 minutes not talking about the subject matter again. But we're close to the end, so let's just make some some wrap-up points. And um, I will have wrap up by saying... Oh, yeah, we're wrap up talking about wrap-up. Our, 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 our full points of what we think is the better... Yeah, Friday slip that condom salt. back on, and let's roll. So I just think that Friday the 13th Part 4 is more quintessential. I think it birthed the slasher genre... Really? really? I think part one was the first... Yes. Part one part was the four, first really? step. Hold on a second there, Not, pal. Hold on. <laughs> hold on. Part one started something. I mean, you had Halloween, you had Giallo, you had all these different things. What I'm talking about is the 1980s slasher sort of thing. It really kind of started 
the trend of how slasher movies were supposed to feel is very influential. I mean, the first one was influential, but I don't think it was, was as influential as the second one with how they treated their final girl, how they treated the characters, how they treated the story as a whole. And I think Amy Steele really pushed that final girl thing to the nth degree. Jamie Lee Curtis started it, but Amy Steele really kind of, completed that and really kind of started something of the final girl being a very intricate part to the thing. She wasn't just the last girl left. She was the girl who was the most, uh, I don't know, like the most mentally sound to take care of the situation at hand. I think she was the best at it. And I think that really pushed the genre forward more so than any of the slasher films coming around, around that era. And overall, I just think it's a well-measured, well-shot film with interesting scenes of violence and just an overall decent story to carry these ideas forward. And now you can wrap up part four and tell me how great all the gore was. I feel part four is the quintessential Jason Voorhees movie because of the display of Jason. The gratuitous violence is great, but it has nothing really to do with the movie. You get a different performance, and you care about people differently. The Jarvis family, despite, I'd say, the second movie becoming the downfall of the series with the Jarvis character just getting completely out of control, is a new aspect to feeling. You're not so much focused on Jason and his killing as you're focused on the survival of these people and the characters in the movie. You have an under Underwhelming performance by, you have an underwhelming performance by Corey Feldman who surprises you at the end and makes it for a more traditional slasher that encompasses new wave and old school values, transcending audiences and allowing it to still be relatable all this time as to where part two, I feel, just falls a little bit short to me personally with the relatability. Out of the two movies, I think they're both excellent. Uh, the best of the series. I don't think anything else can be in contention for it, but I still really, uh, Jason's performance, the ultra jerky, throwing three people through windows, just rip and kill him using all different implements, including his hands. Uh, the gore, as you mentioned, it is great. You have Savini returning, which to me is one of the greatest fighting points. Tom Savini coming back to the series that he helped create and finally killing Jason. And then that itself the death of Jason, human Jason at least. He's never been retconned and brought back to life in any other form outside of a remake. So this is the end, the death of Jason Voorhees. Afterwards, <laughs> I think the birth is, is more important man. than the death. The birth you, of Jason well, is more important than the death of Jason. I don't know. I think the end of the story is really what matters more than the beginning because you can just say once upon a time there was a mongoloid living in the woods that saw his mother get killed and then somehow he has a hockey mask. And then have what an, matters and have an unsatisfactory ending to him. Well, the unsatisfactory ending is what happens after... Well, how does he die in Manhattan? I don't even remember how he dies in... Toxic waste. He gets turned oh, into yeah, a little Jesus, boy okay. again. So, okay. All right, let's no go over reason. that. Well, we have a couple seconds. I wanted to ask you. Well, can you name off the top of your head every Jason? The actors? Yeah, can you can you do that? Are you one of those freaks? Mostly. You have Ari Lehman from the first one. You have Warrington, Gillette, and Steve Dash from part two. You have Richard Brooker from part three. You have Ted White from part four. Part five, I get tripped up. Don't remember part five. Part six is C.J. Graham. Part seven is Kane Hodder. Part eight is Kane Hodder. Part nine is Kane Hodder. Part ten is Kane Hodder. Can't remember Freddy versus Jason, and the last one was Derek Mears. So I'm missing like two. 
I don't know. We're Googling. We're checking it out. Let's let's go to IMDb. We're sponsoring them on the show now. Five and seven, or five and uh, whatever. Five and I, I had to go to two. I can't remember. I had to go to IMDb because I watch Video Drum every night. I'm a fucking art nerd, and I don't know these by memory. I'm not a real horror fan. I'm gonna lose my membership heart card to the underground horror community. Do you want uh, the Fred subtitles Vogel. at the mall as well? Because I can give Fred you the subtitles gonna, too. Fred Vogel himself is going to come and take my underground horror community card member away. Well, let me run through this real quick. Number one, Ari Lehman. Number two, Warrington Gillette uh, and Steve Dash. Steve Dash. Three, Richard Brooker. Four, Ted White. Five, Tom Morga. Six, C.J. Graham. Seven, Kane Hodder. Eight, Ken Kersinger. Kane nine, Hodder. Derek Mears. Oh, oh just King in Kansas general, for, nine. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yes, Ken Kiesinger, whatever. Who was in part eight? He was the guy who uh, worked at the diner who got thrown against the wall. Now, I watched Crystal Lake Memories. Here's a classic Death by DVD thing. You asked this question on the second episode of King of the Basement. I cannot name all of the taglines, but I'm sure you can. You have one, two, three, the final chapter, uh, new beginning. Um, Jason lives. You have uh, the new blood. You have Jason goes to Manhattan, or Jason takes Manhattan. You have uh, Jason goes to hell. You have just Jason X, and you have Freddy versus Jason, and then Friday Thirteenth. I can do Nightmare too. Would you like Nightmare? Yeah, we'll take that. Oh, Nightmare! Well, there's Nightmare One. <laughs> there's Nightmare Two. <laughs> We'll save that for the next show. Uh, we'll have to do a whole Nightmare on Elm Street one now. This turned out oddly well for us doing a practice run beforehand, I guess you could call it, and being very annoyed the entire time through. I would love to hear feedback from all of you people out there that listen to Death by DVD, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, email, deathbydvd1 at gmail.com. What do you think? What's the best Friday the 13th movie in the series? Part one or part four? Let us know. We'll be back next week with probably a camp-themed Death by DVD episode. What do you think? Camp Death by DVD? Sure, we'll talk about Friday the 13th Part 3. Yeah, all the other Friday the 13th and Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3. That's probably going to be that show. Hail to thee, Camp Death by DVD! (laughs) Well, I guess that's the end. That sound means it's the end of the show. Do you have any words of wisdom? Not really. I got nothing this week. I was so pissed off about last night. I, I came up with nothing for today. So there you well, go. Well, I'll run us through some quick words of wisdom. There's my said piano. Sometimes you spend your entire night recording a debate on which Friday the 13th movie is better. Sometimes your host server drops that live show and you spend the rest of your night sitting in your basement wondering what the fuck is wrong with you and why you have nothing better to do and sometimes you just go ahead and record it again the next day because you have no friends and Jason matters I guess to some people these aren't really wisdom words as I'm just complaining and this is the only chance that I'm going to get to complain so thank you good night and have a pleasant tomorrow what do you think those are pretty good right Amazing. All right. Well, that's another episode of Death by DVD. The ashtray's full, the bottle's empty. Good night, good luck.
again at the same time tomorrow for another daily devotion. This is WCYB-TV, Channel 5 in Bristol, serving Bristol, Kingsport, Johnson City, and the Phi-State area. WCYB-TV is owned and operated by Appalachian Broadcasting Corporation, a subsidiary of Lamco Communications Incorporated. WCYB-TV studios and general offices are at Cumberland and Lee Streets, Bristol, Virginia. The studio transmitter links KIS-44 and KCS-8909 operate on frequencies 6,987.5 and 6,912.5 megahertz. WCYB-TV operates at maximum power, 83.2 kilowatts visual, 11.5 kilowatts oral. The transmitter is located at Rye Patch Knob on Holston Mountain in Cherokee National Forest with an antenna 2,230 feet above average terrain. Some of our programs during the day were on film and videotape. This is Steve Taylor speaking for the staff and management of WCYB-TV, wishing you a very pleasant good night and good morning. Ladies and gentlemen, our national anthem. like we have reached the end of another episode of Death by DVD Classics. We hope you enjoyed this Friday the 13th special. It's a classic re-release, and as usual, good night, and have a pleasant tomorrow. You know, <clears throat> this is the first Death by DVD Classic that hasn't had an issue. This is the, uh, the first time that we've not had a major pro- Oh, what the fuck is that? One minute? What do you mean? Well, I, I don't even have time to get the stuff out of my desk in one minute. I mean, I, my ashtray's gonna take longer to empty the one minute.
looks like we have hit the studio's self-destruct sequence. So we are out of here. The ashtray is full. The bottle is empty. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Death by DVD. And Death by DVD Classics will return your favorites from the crypt. Thanks for listening and happy Friday the 13th. Oh. Oh, shit. Oh, Well, maybe I'm not coming back. <laughs>